Nothing as good as Pope. Ah, all right, Courtney, make a note. Um, final exam, tons of Pope. She's making the note. Tons and tons of Pope. Lots of Pope. Practically a papacy. That much Pope. All right, um, Pope is great. No one likes um, Pope when they like other poetry when they first read Pope, but Pope is really great. Okay, let me just give you um, the assignment for tomorrow, and then uh, we'll just look at a couple of moments in The Rape of the Lock. I know some of you have read it, but don't want to admit it. Um, I know what that's like. It's hard to admit that you've actually done the work. Um, the um, For tomorrow, read the Blake Songs of Innocence and Experience selections in the Norton Anthology, um, which was one of the required books for the course. If you don't have the Norton Anthology, um, then what I'm going to do is, um, and I'm sure you do, but if one or two of you don't, what I will do is um, uh, scan the table of contents for Blake, and you can find the poems online. Um, but that's what we will talk about tomorrow. Um, this week and next, we won't have section. Uh, the week after, we will. That is to say, two weeks from tomorrow, we will have section again. Um, so this week and next, we'll be doing um, mainly romantic poetry, and um, we'll be starting with Blake tomorrow. Uh, the romantics hated Pope. Um, most of them did. Byron loved him, um, but mainly the Romantic poets hated Pope. Um, and they hated Pope um, for his virtues, which is uh, the best reason to be hated, um, because it means that they were doing something different. Even as Pope was doing something different from what Milton was doing, um, the Romantics were going back to Milton and therefore doing something different from what Pope was doing. Um, in particular, Wordsworth, we're not going to read much of this part of Wordsworth, but Wordsworth late-tish in his, in his career. Um, Wordsworth was a great poet till he was about 35. Um, and at the age of 35, um, he just went off a cliff into awfulness and stupidity, with a few exceptions. Um, but most of Wurzer's poetry is really bad, but most of Wurzer's poetry before, six, before 1805 or 1807 is really great. Um, after that, um, it, not so much. Um, but nevertheless, even in that bad period, Wordsworth wrote um, a series of essays on epitaphs. That is, epitaphs are what's written on gravestones. And Wordsworth got very, very interested in looking um, for reasons that are very Wordsworthian, um, at how the dead wanted to be remembered in just a little bit of verse on their gravestones, um, how the living wanted to remember the dead. And um, Wordsworth was for certain kinds of very stark and simple and powerful epitaphs and against other kinds of epitaphs that he thought were way too um, pat, way too um, easy in what they said. What he was against in epitaphs and also what he's against in general in poetry is wit. Um, wit is where poetry is funny. And what makes poetry funny, even in limericks, which are the, um, the gold standard for um, funny poems, what makes poetry funny even in limericks is the wittiness of juxtaposition, the way um, surprise and delight and um, perfection all come together. So if you think of any good limerick, and everyone knows good limericks, um, what's part of what's funny about the limericks is the last line is a punchline. And what makes something a punchline is that it brings all sorts of things together. Um, a way of putting that in, the problem with, with the great limericks is they're all dirty. And this is um, an NC-17 course, but we don't have to push it that far. Um, but, what, but if you think about any good limerick, what makes it work is ultimately the way the very last rhyming word, you know that the form of a limerick is um, the rhyme scheme, anyone, of a limerick? A, A. Yeah, you can always say A. Whenever anyone asks you for a rhyme scheme, you can immediately go for A. Okay, good. So A, then? B. Wait, wait, say it again? No. 
Like you said two A's, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. A, A, go on. And then A. Okay, good. No, 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 it's five lines. Oh. Oh, Limerick's yeah. five lines long. Yeah, so it would go something like, um, there, there once was a rhyme called rhyme A that then rhymed again with rhyme A. Then came rhyme B, which rhymed with rhyme B, and then it returned back to yeah, good, <laughs> good, right, okay. Um, but if you were to make it the NC-17 version, it's, um, there once was a line, what was it? There once was a line rhymed rhyme A, whose second line also rhymed A. Then came rhyme B, which rhymed with rhyme B, but everyone said, Fucking A. So how's that? Like, come on, I was just making this up on the spot, you guys. All right. Um, so the point is that when you get to the very last word in a limerick, there's a way that it crystallizes things. Um, and that crystallization um, just kind of goes back and makes the whole, if it's a good limerick, it makes the whole limerick work. Um, and that's a punchline moment in a limerick, where just everything comes together. Um, and it comes together in a rhyme. So one of the things to notice about Pope, as I'm sure you did if you um, read even two lines, one line won't do, but two lines will, is the major, 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 major difference between Pope and Milton is, first of all, that Pope rhymes. Um, Pope writes in a form called the heroic couplet. And where the heroic couplet comes from, the heroic couplet is the great form of um, between Milton and pretty much the middle of the 18th century. For about 75 years, most major poems by most major poets were written in heroic couplets. Um, we today, we who love blank verse, we who love um, free verse, we tend not to like heroic couplets. Um, they tend to seem like hallmark cards. Um, roses are red. Um, this card is... <laughs> roses are red. I'm sorry, you're dead. Um, <laughs> a sympathy card. Um, Wordsworth thought heroic couplets were the worst possible thing you could have on a tombstone. Um, that is the idea that you would have something that just rhymed in a way um, that was just shut the door on things. Wasn't thinking about death with the kind of lingering sadness, with the kind of memory of the past that you, sh you should think about death with. Um, Pope, who was um, second only to Dryden, um, as the great poet of the heroic couplet. Dryden was a friend of Milton's, slightly younger um, than he, and Pope, um, who was 12 when Dryden died, um, was a worshiper of Dryden's. They were the two greatest of poets who wrote in the heroic couplet. Um, Pope, um, one of the things that he wrote, which are um, pretty hilarious, um, were epigrams on um, people that he knew, and they tended to be in the form of couplets. Um, he wrote an epigram for the collar of the king's dog. Um, so it was just engraved on the collar of the dog, and what it said was, I am, he's talking about um, a particular um, palace that the king and queen lived in, um, namely Kew, which is now Kew Gardens in, or just outside of London. I am his majesty's dog at Kew. Pray tell me, sir, whose dog are you? Um, so that's the sort of thing that heroic couplets are really good at. They're good at wit, where part of what wit is about, part of what wittiness is about, is having everything come together in a single moment. It's an aha moment. It's not even a punch line, you could say. It's a punch word. It's the last word of a rhyme. Obviously, no such thing happens in Milton. You don't say, they hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary, I don't know where this is going, way, oh my god, 
what an incredible word to end with. It is an incredible word to end with, but it's not that it's an incredible word to end with. It's that it's an incredible sentence to end with. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. Um, it's a sentence as a whole. It's not that the sentence somehow becomes what it does when it stops on a dime at its last word. Um, it's the sentence as it's unfolding is amazing. Uh, maybe one way then that you could define wit, again, think of limericks as your um, go-to familiar example. Um, one way to define wit is to say that the poem works, that a witty poem works, that a riddle works. Um, because witty poems do work a little bit like riddles, is when you get the answer, it kind of goes back through the whole couple of lines or even five lines of a limerick and gives it meaning at the point where you get the answer. Um, Lewis Carroll has a famous um, riddle, how is a raven like a writing desk? Um, and he actually didn't have an answer. Um, and people afterwards said, hey, you never answered that riddle. How is a raven like a writing desk? Um, and it's not that obvious how a raven is like a writing desk. Um, but his answer was, people remember, flat notes on both. Um, ravens sing with a flat note, you would write a flat note on a writing desk. So it's not great, but what he managed to do was take two things that had nothing to do with each other except that they started with an R sound, raven and writing desk, come up with a complete nonsense riddle that he didn't have an answer to, but when forced to come up with an answer, was witty enough to come up with this idea of the flat note, which is the raven singing flat, and um, the note that you write on a piece of paper also being flat. Um, there are later answers which are better. Um, the best answer post Lewis Carroll to how is a raven like a writing desk is Poe wrote on both. Get it? Yeah, okay. It took you a minute, but you laughed. That's good. Um, Poe wrote on a writing desk because he was writing, and he wrote on the subject of the raven. Remember, once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, that raven. Um, so a riddle and a rhyme are witty in the same way in witty poetry, which is that they bring things together, and they bring things together at that particular point, at that particular moment, at that particular culmination, so that what will happen in witty poems is they do tend to stop on a dime. Every moment of wit is, boom, right there. Now you wait for people to get it, to see how the two lines um, that end on that word go together. So heroic couplets, the history of the heroic couplet is, I'm going to simplify a lot, but this is very, this is basically how it worked, was if you look at Shakespeare's sonnets, if you look at people who are writing around the time of Shakespeare, what you will see is that they will often have long forms. The sonnet is how many lines? Anyone? 14 lines. A Shakespearean sonnet will be three quatrains, three four-line stanzas, that will generally rhyme A, B, A, B. Um, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F. That gives us 12 lines. And then there'll be a final two lines, which will be a couplet. So that time of year, thou mayest in me behold. Behold is A. When yellow leaves are none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, rhyming with behold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang, rhyming with hang. In me thou seest the fading of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night will take a good away death's second self that seals up all in. So it's after sunset fadeth in the west, death's second self that seals up all in. Rest, yes. Death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire as on the ashes of his youth doth lie. Um, 
as on the deathbed were on it must ex pyre, good, consumed with that which it was nourished, might be a little bit hard, that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as on the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished, by, good, consumed with that which it was nourished, by, then, so that's the first 12 lines, then two more lines, um, this thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. So the last, the end of a Shakespearean sonnet after 12 lines that are rhyming A, B, A, B, that form, one, two, one, two, is you get a summing up couplet. Here are four descriptions of how old I am, and then I sum it up by saying, you see all this, and yet you love me all the better for it. And I say that in a couplet. Another famous sonnet of Shakespeare's, um, among the hardest and among the greatest. Um, the expense of spirit, no, no, not that one. That's also among the hardest and greatest. But um, they that have power to hurt and will do none. Um, and for sweetest things, after he gives a long description of those who have power to hurt and do hurt versus those who have power to hurt and don't do the hurt that they can do, um, he sums up by saying, for sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. So these sonnets are ending with couplets. As you know from King Lear, a lot of Shakespearean scenes end with couplets. There are other verse forms that will be seven or eight or, or nine lines long that are used frequently at the time, where the last two lines of each stanza will end in a couplet. The Spenserian stanza, which is the most elaborate of stanzas, is rhymed A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. And those final two Cs feel like a summing up and a couplet. Those couplets are not only, as in Chaucer, as some of you will know. How many people have read any Chaucer? So you will know that the beginning of the, that, that the Canterbury Tales are written in couplets also. Um, one that's Aprila, that is when April, with his shortest sota, with his sweet showers, or with his showers sweet, the drucht of March hath persed to the rota. So when that April, with his sweet showers, the draught of March has pierced to the root. Um, that's rhyming in couplets, but notice that nothing ends with the word rota. That is, when April with his sweet showers, the draught of March has pierced to the root. And, and he keeps going on about what happens during that time, when that happens. The heroic couplet, as it's called, the kind of couplet that Pope and that Dryden write, uh, are almost always standalones. That is, if you look at any couplet in Pope or Dryden, um, I am going to um, look at one in random, at random in Pope. Um, yet, yet a moment, one dim ray of light, indulge dread chaos and eternal night. That's the couplet. Of darkness visible, so much be lent as half to show, half veil the deep intent. So he's calling upon night to lend as much darkness visible as will half show and half veil the deep intent. Where is he getting that phrase, darkness visible? Paradise. From Paradise Lost, yes. Um, and he expects us to recognize that. Ye powers whose mysteries restored I sing, in, to whom time hears me on his rapid wing. Here he's actually going to go on because it's a vocation, but that's his description of the powers. Ye powers whose mysteries restored I sing, to whom time bears me on his rapid wing. So spend a while your force inertly strong, then take at once the poet and the song. So one thing about a heroic couplet is every second line is going to be heavily, with almost without exception, is going to be heavily punctuated. That is, in heroic couplets, you will find that the second rhyme, the resolving rhyme, 
we can say that when you have rhymes in a poem, you have an onset, which proposes the rhyme, and then a resolution, which is the word that rhymes with the proposed rhyme. If you're writing a poem and you forget or don't know that there are certain words that allegedly have no rhymes in English, you might begin your poem by saying, I love you so much, I think of you each month, and then I'm stuck because there's no rhyme for month. Um, and so what do you do? Well, if you're Kanye, you can rhyme it. But otherwise, you don't really know what to do. So you can have a word and then look for a rhyme. That's how people write rhymed poetry. They have a word in mind, then they look for a rhyme for that word. And sometimes they find that they can't find a rhyme for a word like month, or famously for orange, or for silver. Um, those are all words that allegedly don't rhyme. Bilge is another one. So if you find yourself writing a line that ends with the word bilge, you had better redo the line because you're not going to find a rhyme for it. Um, so what happens is we have an onset, which is the word for which you as a writer, if you're just writing it in order, may be looking for a rhyme. The word also for which the reader is going to be anticipating a rhyme the way we did with um, that time of year. Um, that is, um, behold cold, um, fire expire, um, lie by. Um, when we do that, the second rhyme is a resolving rhyme. So the first is set up a little tension set up a wait in the mind of the reader, waiting for the word that's going to rhyme, and then bring that wait to an end when you come up with the rhymed word. So you begin, there was a young man from Nantucket, and everyone is wondering what's going to rhyme with Nantucket, and they're waiting for the rhyme. Um, and so it's while you wait that there's a little bit of attentive attention that you give to the poem. Now, generally, what poets want to do is they want to um, modulate how much attention a reader gives to waiting for those purely formal aspects when things are going to rhyme. If what you do is if you have the rhymes very far separated from each other, as some poets do, if the rhymes come at irregular intervals, as they do in what's called the irregular ode, which some of the greatest poems ever written in are written in, um, then the reader isn't going to spend a lot of time saying, OK, the rhyme is going to come right about now. Boom. You won't have that boom, boom, boom effect every second line, which you do in the heroic couplet. So the heroic couplet, one reason that people tend not to like it if they don't, is that what they feel is there's a particular kind of attention that they are always giving the heroic couplet, which is the exact opposite of the kind of attention you give to Shakespeare. When you hear Lear saying, blow winds, crack your cheeks, rage blow, you hurricanos spout, nor wind, fire, storm, thunder are my daughters. You're not thinking, and is he going to rhyme daughters with waters in the next line? Um, what you're thinking is, that's passion. When you read Paradise Lost, um, hail, holy light, offspring of heaven firstborn, or of the eternal co-eternal beam, may I express thee with scorn? That's wrong. Um, you're not looking for the rhyme. That's why one reason that Milton calls rhyme um, wrong. The like jingling uh, or the jingling of like endings is not what poems should do. Um, so Pope in that sense is the opposite of Milton. Um, Milton, there is no relationship in Milton or very little relationship in Milton between the end of a line and a punctuation mark. In the heroic couplet, when you get the second line, it's always, boom, right there, punctuation mark. So he begins the rape of the lock. What dire offense from amorous causes springs? What mighty contests rise from trivial things? And you can hear the parallelism 
between those two lines. And they're parallel because every time you get the rhyme, you're getting something like a parallel metrical structure. What dire offense from Amherst causes springs. What mighty contests rise from trivial things. I sing this verse to Carol, muses due. That is his friend Carol asked him to write the poem. This verse to Carol, muse is due. This even Belinda may vouchsafe to view. Slight is the subject, but not so the praise, if she inspire and he approve my lays. Say, and now he's calling upon the muse, as Milton does, say what strange motive goddess could compel a well-bred lord to assault a gentle bell. So heroic couplet ending with a question mark. Here's the invocation of the muse, not of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, sing heavenly muse. But simply say what strange motive goddess could compel a well-bred lord to assault a gentle bell. Oh, say what stranger cause, yet unexplored, could make a gentle bell reject a, a lord. Okay, so notice, say what strange motive goddess could compel a well-bred lord to assault a gentle bell. Oh, say what stranger cause, yet unexplored, could make a gentle bell reject a lord. So notice that the rhyme here is unexplored, rhyming with, yeah, or let's get the rhythm, reject a lord. Okay, so the two lines are unexplored, comma, uh, this is line nine if you're looking at your copy of the rate of the lock unexplored, and then what could make a gentle bell reject a lord. The rhymes before that are, say what strange motive goddess could compel, and what's compel going to rhyme with? Gentle bell. Um, say what strange motive goddess could compel a well-bred lord to assault a gentle Let's just do toll bell. Okay, so both, so now what we have are four lines, each of which is rhyming AA, and they themselves are making a larger unit, which are the two things that the that Pope is asking the muse to um, tell him of, that he's invoking the muse. For. So notice now that what he does, because this is typical of the, heroic, of the heroic couplet in the hands of a genius, which Pope was, that what he's doing is he's got another set of parallelisms. So what's line one? Let's say these are four lines. So one, two, three, four. How does line one begin? You can look or you can remember. Yeah, how does that line ending with the word compel, how does it begin? Say. Yeah, so it's say, and how does line three begin? Oh, yeah, oh, say. So they're essentially the same beginnings, but with a little bit of variation. Mentally, Cognitively, that works, uh, that works sort of like rhyme, which is to say that it's the same thing, say and say. Not a rhyme. It's not say rhyming, rhyming with say. We never begin. It's in, an interesting fact about the human brain that in no language with rhymed poetry do you find the rhymes at the beginning of a line. They're always at the end of a line. In all cultures that have rhymed poetry, the rhymes are always line ending. Um, this is an anthropological fact about um, the anthropology of poetry. But, well, so it's not that say is rhyming with say, it's repeating the word say, but it's repeating with a difference. That is, it's say and then it's intensifying 
with the word O. So say what could do this. Oh, please, you know, let me say it even more strongly. Say what strange motive goddess could compel a well-bred lord to assault a gentle bell. Oh, say what stranger cause yet unexplored could make a gentle bell reject a lord. Now, I've actually picked these lines at random. I have lines I do want to talk about. But notice what else is going on in these lines. How else are they? Um, so what, OK, let me just say that what we're, let me oh say. Um, oh say, can you see that here we have parallels in compel and bell, that's a rhyme. Unexplored, reject a lord, that's a rhyme. And that's one kind of parallel the same endings, plored and lord. Um, that should be plored, and that should be lord, are the rhymes. Then we have another parallel, which is say and oh say, or what we should say is near parallels. Say and oh say, and um, pell and bell, and then um, plored and lord. And we have a meta-parallel, which is couplet and couplet. So that there are parallels in the first and the second line of each couplet. The first, the obvious parallels are same meter, ending with a pause, and same last syllable. And then, one level up, we have parallels, which is that every couplet is followed by another couplet so that each couplet parallels the next simply by virtue of being a couplet, which isn't true in any other kind of poem. In any other kind of poem, if you have A, B, A, B, then um, the A, B part isn't going to be quite the same as um, what hap what's happened before. You have to rise to a still higher level. OK, what are the other? Um, Lily, you were going to give another one. Okay, good. So that we get this one ends with bell, and this one ends with lord. So here are the two characters. The bell is who? Anyone know? Her name? Belinda. Yep, so the bell is Belinda, and then the lord is the other main character, um, the baron, who will clip Belinda's lock of hair. So here we have parallels in the two main characters. Um, gentle Bell and Lord. Um, so, say what strange motive goddess could compel a well-bred Lord to assault a gentle Bell. Oh, say what stranger cause yet unexplored could make a gentle Bell reject a Lord. So, let me um, emphasize a couple more words. Say what strange is that emphasized enough for you? Say what strange motive could goddess could compel a well-bred lord to assault a gentle bell. Oh, say what stranger cause yet unexplored could make a gentle bell reject a lord. So where's the parallel there, or near parallel? Strange. Good. So strange what? And yeah, so strange, stranger. So say what strange motive. Oh, say what stranger cause. What's the difference between strange and stranger? Dumb and dumber? <laughs> stranger is stranger than strange. Yeah. But what's but metrically, what's the difference? Syllabically, what's More the difference? Syllables. More syllables, yes. Two syllables, making stranger stranger than strange. So how do you handle the fact that again it's like say oh say strange becomes stranger? So how do, how does Pope handle the fact that this parallel is going to mess things up because he's got an extra syllable? Yeah. Okay, so it's so it so first he says, um, 
what's um, a well-bred lord to assault a gentle bell. So that's in the next line. Well-bred lord. And here it's simply a lord. But that doesn't have to do with the actual lines, the lines that have strange and stranger in them. Yeah? Um, he says cause instead of motive. Yes. Right. One has the two syllables. Yes. So you have strange motive. Three syllables. So he's only got room now for if he's going to have that be a parallel, and he's already used up two syllables, what does he put it there instead? Cause. Cause, which is a synonym for motive in this case. It's a synonym partly because we already know that the word motive is the idea here. If cause were first, we wouldn't necessarily think that motive was a synonym for cause. But if motive is how we're thinking of this, then cause is a synonym for motive. And we don't think twice about it. Neither did he. He didn't work this out um, counting on his fingers. What he himself says in an autobiographical poem is the one thing he could do was um, produce this kind of poetry from very early childhood. Um, he says, I lisped in numbers for the numbers came. Um, that is, that they just felt spontaneous to him. Even when he was a little child, um, he, could, he could just produce this spontaneously. But we can still analyze what he's producing spontaneously and see why it works so well. So what you have now is say to oh say, Strange motive becomes stranger cause. Um, pell to bell. Plored to lord. Couplet to couplet. Um, and then following up on what Lily said, well-bred lord becomes lord there, right? So we have at the end of this line, we pick up at the end of line four something that we found at the beginning of line two. So there are these parallels, but now there's a kind of crisscross. Is there a parallel crisscross, so to speak? What is it? So here's Lord, going back to well-bred Lord here. Lord is the resolving rhyme of the second couplet. What's the resolving rhyme of the first couplet? Bell. Bell. Does that go, does that do a similar thing across couplets to the second couplet? Yeah, to where? Yeah, could make a gentle bell. Um, so say what strange motive goddess could compel a well-bred lord to assault a gentle bell. And then, oh, say what stranger cause yet unexplored could make a gentle bell reject a lord. So now, again, you have gentle bell there and gentle bell here and they are crisscrossing between the stanzas. So it's not, you know, this we take in immediately. It's not like, um, oh, wow, I had no idea that was all there. You did have an idea it was all there. Um, you didn't analyze it. You didn't have to think about it. Um, but the point is that there's just, that what Pope is doing is um, arranging just a whole bunch of different kinds of parallelisms and different kinds of rearrangements of the same element. And so just the placement of those words um, produces a really beautiful effect, a really elegant effect. He himself compares it to dancing. Um, he compares writing poetry to dancing. Um, and he says that those move, move most gracefully who have learned to dance, true art, True skill in writing, he says, comes from art, not chance, as those move grace, I forget actually what word he uses, but those move most gracefully who have learned to dance. So basically, his words are dancing. And the dance is a complex one, and it has to be complex in order for what is really 
the gigantic constraint against the heroic couplet, which is that it is such a boring form. The very fact that it's a boring form, that it's A, A, B, B, C, C, over, over, again, again, same, same, word, word. Um, that fact does what all poetic constraints do, which is puts great pressure on the writer to find some way to keep things interesting. And that is a general rule of formal poetry. It's probably a general rule of writing in general, but it's absolutely the rule of formal poetry, that any formal poetry, in order to be good, is putting pressure on the writer to find some way to stay interesting in order to stave off the predictability of the form. Form is predictable, and it's that very fact that requires great resource in the poet to prevent that predictability from burying the poem. The reason there's so much bad poetry in the world and the reason Hallmark cards are so terrible and the reason that there's, there's just such a huge amount of crap rhymed poetry is that it's really hard to make it interesting. But when you do make it interesting, as Pope does, as Dryden does, when you use all the resources that he has at his disposal to make it interesting, then that interestingness bursts out against the form that's constraining it. So the form is constraining. It's not, oh, I love the heroic couplet so much. No one likes the heroic couplet as a pure form. Pope and Dryden, and people who love Pope and Dryden, love the heroic couplet because, or rather in spite of, its form. They love it because the form pushes the writer to push back. And it's the pushback that is what makes the poem great. So what Pope does is he takes this really difficult form, um, difficult form, very easy form to write in, but very difficult form to write interestingly in. And he has to fill it. Every other line, he has to do something interesting. Every other line, he has to do something funny or arresting or witty or all of those things. So over and over and over again, he has to do things that are unexpected. Now, there are some things that the heroic couplet, um, by its very nature, does allow for. One is that heroic couplets tend to be very fragmentary. That is, because they're end-stopped, because each line, or 99% of lines, ends with a long punctuation mark, a comma, or a semicolon, or a colon, or a question mark, or a period, because they're end-stopped, heroic couplets tend to be standalones. That's why they're often used as epitaphs, um, because you can just have two lines, and they stand alone. They're a couplet, and there they are. Um, standard epitaph type couplets say things like, um, stop traveler when, um, when you see me, think to yourself, like me, you soon will be. Um, so two lines saying, Read this and weep, basically, because it's going to happen to you. What's happened to me will happen to you. What else do you need to know? So heroic couplets do tend to work really well out of context. You can take two lines of Pope and quote them. Pope is fantastically good for titles for books and movies um, because these things work so well out of context. Um, anyone know the Jim Carrey movie based on a Pope line? Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, um, which is from Pope's great sad poem, Eloisa to Abelard. Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, and the reason that phrase is there 
is not because the poem is about sunshine or eternity or the mind or spotlessness or how those things go together, but because for two-line po- two couplets to be able to be separated out by pu- punctuation, by the fact that they are the ends of sentences, that all those two-line forms tend to be sentences, um, in order to write over and over again in that form, you have to write highly metaphorically and every couplet allows you a new metaphor. So that unlike, say, King Lear, unlike Shakespeare, unlike Milton, unlike Wordsworth, to make couplets work, there's a whole lot of varying of the metaphor from couplet to couplet. And because there's a whole lot of varying of metaphor from couplet to couplet, um, part of what's wonderful about heroic couplets is just the sheer dazzling profusion of different metaphors that justify the different rhymes. Pope, I should also tell you, was known and is actually used by um, historians of the English language because of this. He was known for the purity of his rhymes. Um, Pope's rhymes in the early 18th century, um, some of the pronunciation has changed so we don't see the rhymes as pure, but in the early 18th century, Pope's rhymes were exact um, and there are very few poets who will use exact rhymes. When you read the tiger for tomorrow, anyone remember how it begins? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. So that's an exact rhyme. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? That's not an exact rhyme. Um, some people think it's not a rhyme at all. It is a rhyme. But it's certainly not exact. I and symmetry. Um, don't, do not say symmetry, because you'll just ruin the poem. And do not say E, because you'll ruin the poem, but not as badly. Um, the more serious the poem, the less you need an exact rhyme. Heroic couplets tend to be funny, and they tend to need exact rhymes. And then what that allows is for Pope to go anywhere for his rhymes and to fill in the line. So you get just wonderful moments like this. Um, know then, this is at line 41, know then unnumbered spirits round thee fly. So says um, the sylph to um, Belinda. Know then unnumbered spirits round thee fly. And then he has to finish that. So he comes up with this great line, the light militia of the lower sky or go to the end of his speech. Um, the light coquettes, this is at line 65, the light coquettes in sylphs aloft repair, so they go up in the form of sylphs, and then this great line, and sport and flutter in the fields of air. So here is a poem which talks about the fields of air, which talks about the light militia of the lower sky. If you go um, a little farther on, um, this is at line 105. The sylph is then describing who he is. Of these am I who thy protection claim. That is, I am claiming um, you as, the, as um, my protege, the person I have to protect. Of these am I who thy protection claim. A watchful sprite and Ariel is my name. Um, Ariel from where, anyone? The Tempest, yeah. Um, a name meaning a spirit of the air. And Ariel is my name. Late as I ranged the crystal wilds of air, in the clear mirror of thy ruling star, I saw last some dread event impend ere to the main this morning sun descend. Again, the crystal wilds of air. You wouldn't come up with that fantastic phrase, and it's just fantastic. As I, as I roamed the crystal, as I ranged the crystal wilds of air, the only reason to come up with that phrase is to make the couplet work. But making the couplet work that well is fantastic. So you could easily imagine a science fiction novel called The Crystal Wilds of Air. And that title would just totally grab you. But it never would have come up unless Pope were writing in heroic couplets. OK, I just want to point out one more thing to you, because we have our usual uh, negative minute. 
um, look at um, one part of speech called, uh, excuse me, one figure of speech called zoigma. Um, does anyone know what zoigma is? Sometimes called solepsis, but they're not exactly the same thing. So zoigma is when you have, um, it, it's a Greek word meaning yoke, when two things are yoked together. Um, and it's um, a way of being very funny. Pope uses it a lot in The Rape of the Lock. If you look at Canto 3, um, just the opening to Canto 3 where he's describing Hampton Court, um, he describes where, how here at line 5, Canto 3, line 5, um, here Britain's statesmen oft the fall for doom of foreign tyrants and of nymphs at home. So the fall of tyrants is the fall of tyrants from power. Um, the fall of nymphs at home would be the fall of nymphs from virtue. So it's a different kind of fall. That's already zoigma. And then he goes on, famous lines, here thou, great Anna, he's talking about Queen Anne, here thou, great Anna, whom three realms obey, dost sometimes counsel take and sometimes tay, which is how tea was pronounced then. So you sometimes take counsel, you sometimes take tea. So the word take there has two different meanings. One is figurative, as when you take counsel. The other is literal, I'm going to take a cup of tea right now. Um, earlier on, we hear how the, how the sylphs prevent the young women from staining their honor or a new brocade. One is a figurative use of stain, you stain your honor. One is literal use, you pour tea on your brocade by spilling it. Zoigma is really good for heroic couplets because it's another way, you could say, of bifurcating within this really intense and pressured structure. So remember, it will be on the exam. You will want to read it. Um, it really is totally great, but tomorrow we will start with Blake, who was no pope even. Um, so pick up your papers. Do people want to know whose papers I have? Yes, no, maybe? Thank you. Pick them up, hand them in. I'm just going to say, Madeline, Rebecca, and Allison, I have your papers.